So uh, I just would like to start by acknowledging the obvious. It's been said that all of us are either in the midst of a transition, just coming out of a transition, a significant transition, or just going in to a significant transition. So transition and change has kind of taken over our lives. And so one of the things we want to look at at Ruth is, is how to navigate significant transition and change. Sometimes we can become numb to transition. We just kind of bury it. There's grief, there's loss, but we just bury it because it, it happens so often that we really don't sometimes know how to deal with it. So we endeavor to study and consider <clears throat> the book of Ruth in the next four weeks. I'm hopeful, I'm hopeful, I'm prayerful that we'll discover how we can pay better attention to the significant, maybe all of the transitions in our lives. What is this transition? What is God saying to me? What is God saying to my family? What is God saying to my church in a season of transition? What I'd like to ask you to do, if you would be open to this, is to read all four chapters of Ruth each week before we gather together. That'll help us, I think, it'll help you to see what's going on. Take you 15, 20 minutes uh, to read that uh, book uh, as we attempt to, to gather together. So why Ruth? Well, as I think I mentioned, Ruth is, is all about transition. Some pretty dark transitions in chapter one, and then the clouds part a little bit for two, three, and four, uh, but it'll help us to see that. I think w w one, of, one of the major themes, if not the, well, one of the major themes of Ruth is that it moves from emptiness to fullness. And, and that's the same thing that God is doing in our lives. Whether you know it or not, there's, there's emptiness in our lives. And God wants to unfold his fullness in and through our lives in the days ahead. Another reason for studying Ruth is that we tend to view this narrative as a traditional fairy tale type uh, sleeping beauty, uh, some, singing something like, someday my prince will come, and Prince Charming coming, and they get married and live happily ever after. But this narrative is anything but traditional. I think we have to go a little deeper to see some of the non-traditional aspects of, of Ruth and the main, other main characters in the book. And I want you also to notice as we engage here, there's nothing overtly miraculous in the book of Ruth. There's, there's no miracles, there's no visions, there's no direct words from God in this book. And I think what we're gonna see here is that, that God is working in our lives. He's working in the lives of his people, even in the midst of difficult times. And I would say even in the midst of the mundane season, the day-to-day -day stuff, where it's not big and loud and obvious that God is at work. Before we look at the book of Ruth, the first chapter, that's where we're headed, I'd like to stop for a moment at Luke, chapter 24, verse 27. And some of you will recognize this is, is in that passage, uh, the road to Emmaus. And Jesus comes alongside two disciples uh, on the way to Jerusalem, uh, from Jerusalem to Emmaus, about a seven-mile journey, two to three hours, and the disciples don't recognize Jesus, and 
One of the verses there that I think is important for our study is Luke 24, 27. Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So their scripture was the Old Testament at that point. What Jesus is saying here is probably the most important Bible study of all time in this two to three hour journey as he unpacks this. What this is saying is that the whole Old Testament is actually about Jesus. And for some of you, this will be a a new perspective, a new lens for you through which to view, particularly the Old Testament. We tend to think the New Testament about Jesus, the Old Testament about other stuff. But once we see that the whole Old Testament points to Jesus, it'll change the way that we read the Bible. It'll change the way that we see what God is doing as we read through the Old Testament. When we add the New Testament, we begin to see that the whole Bible only tells one story. It's the story of redemption and reconciliation through Jesus. So in every passage, what I'd encourage you to ask as you read is, how does this point us to Jesus Christ? How does this passage point us to the redemption and reconciliation of Jesus Christ. Here's an illustration. How many of you have seen the movie The Sixth Sense? Anybody? Uh, almost half. It's getting older now. It's about 20 years old. Uh, Bruce Willis and a kid, I forget his name. Uh, and it's a great movie. If you haven't seen it yet, you should, you should see it. But you can really only see that movie two times. The first time you see it, the ending is quite shocking. The second time you see it, you'll begin to be very aware of all the the indicators and and the pointing towards the ending of the movie. And I think in the same way, once our hearts are kind of, are awakened to the implications, the implication that, that the whole Old Testament points to Jesus, that we'll begin to look at every passage in the Bible differently. So if that's new to you, think about that for a while. If that's just a review, then just keep, keep at it. So we're going to begin each week in Ruth to consistently ask of every passage, how does this passage point us to the work and the person of Jesus Christ? And uh, we'll talk more about that. There's a Bible study workshop on the 18th. And so with that, I'd like to read the first chapter of the book of Ruth. It's on page 225 in the Bibles there at your seats or your device or whatever you're, you're using. And so starting in verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and his two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Mahalon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem. Ephrathite, Bethlehem means the same thing, in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. Then Elimelech died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah, and the other a woman named Ruth. But about ten years later, both Mahalon and Kilion died. And this left Naomi alone, without her two sons and her husband. Then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. 
So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab and return to their homeland, to her homeland, excuse me. And with her two daughters-in-law, she set out from the place where she had been living, and they took the road that, led, that would lead them back to Judah. But on the way, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back to your mother's homes, and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. No, they said, we want to go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, why should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up to be your husbands? No, my daughters, return to your parents' homes, for I am too old to marry again. And even if it were possible, and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? Of course not, my daughters. Things are far more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. I want to stop there. I don't like this translation. I don't like the word fist. Uh, Fist reminds us all of abuse. Uh, It's actually not a good translation. Uh, The literal translation is hand. And as you probably know in the Bible, the hand of God can mean either discipline or favor. And it's true that the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. And certainly, as we'll see, if you haven't seen already, the Lord is dealing with Naomi. We're certain of that. But he has certainly not raised his fist against her. I just want to make that clear. I I don't like the wording there. Verse 14. And again, they wept together. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister in law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you or turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. And when Naomi saw that Jesus was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. So the two of them continued on their journey. And when they came to Bethlehem, the entire town, it's more like a hamlet at that point, but the entire town was excited by their arrival. Is it really Naomi? The women asked. And she said, don't call me Naomi. Instead, call me Mara. For the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer? And the Almighty has sent such a tragedy upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by her daughter-in-law Ruth, the young Moabite woman. And they arrived in Bethlehem in late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. So I titled this sermon, Dark Times with a Ray of Hope. And it's a pretty dark chapter, but that last verse, the clouds begin to part. That's the ray of hope. So pray with me. Kind Father, we come before you today, we ask that you would speak to our hearts, and we welcome you into this place and into our lives. Uh, Teach us your ways. We commit this time to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to take some time to wrap our heads, hopefully our hearts, around what we just read. And I have four lessons from this first chapter that I'd like for us to humbly consider today. 
And we'll conclude the sermon by asking, how does this first chapter point us to Jesus? And we'll conclude our time together, uh, hopefully by seeing the work of God, the work of Jesus in our lives. And again, we'll go over, I also put a, a blog on the website, kind of an overview of the series, and I'm going to try and keep you up to date or on the blog with things that we just don't have time for uh, in the sermons. So the first lesson involves the first nine words of the chapter, which tell us the time and the setting of the Ruth narrative. It was in the time of the judges, in the days when the judges ruled Israel. For those who have read the book of Judges, then you would know that this was a deeply dark and degrading time for the whole nation of Israel. If you just jump up or turn the page and look at the last verse of Judges 21, 25, it says, in those days, Israel had no king. All the people seemed, all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Here's what one commentator wrote. The book of Judges was teeming with violent invasions, apostate religion, uh, unchecked lawlessness, and tribal civil war. And if you've ever read Judges, you, you'll know that that's putting it mildly. It's an awful, uh, degrading book. It's one of the reasons why I know the Bible's true, because you wouldn't put that book in the Bible if you were trying to fool somebody. So a proper understanding of what's going on here as we begin this study of Ruth, it leads us to our first lesson. It's also the big idea of the sermon. The big idea is, if you don't remember anything else, try and remember the big idea. Here it is. Even in the midst of dark, difficult, and chaotic times, God still works on our behalf for his glory and our joy. And when we're in difficult circumstances or mundane circumstances, it's hard to see that God is still actively working for his glory and for our good. You may have heard uh, Greenland was in the news lately. Um, and when that came up, for some reason, I was reminded of a science lesson that I'd heard a long time ago. In the sea around Greenland, there's lots of icebergs floating it used to be innumerable icebergs, now it's lots of icebergs floating. And through time-lapsed photography, scientists discovered that the icebergs were moving in different directions. And as they, they sought to determine what was happening, what they found out was that the smaller icebergs were moved by the trade winds, just kind of pushing them along, and the larger icebergs were being moved by the deeper ocean currents. An important part of this first lesson is that oftentimes imposed transitions in our lives or difficult times, they're the result of God wanting to capture our attention and to connect us more deeply with the deep ocean currents of his will. Instead of perhaps being continually tossed around or pushed around by the surface winds and waves of our circumstance. There's something deeper and more profound that God wants to do. For the last several years, uh, Job's testimony at the end of the book has been seared into my soul. I just can't 
get past it. And if you read the book of Job, horrendous, unthinkable things that happened in his life. And here's Job's testimony, Job 42.5. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, and now my eye sees you. What's he saying? In the first chapter of Job, it tells us that Job was a righteous man. What it's saying here is that Job knew about God, but through his circumstances, through the trials of fire in his life, he came to know God. And the reason was he's a humble man. His friends didn't get it. His wife didn't get it. Remember, she said, curse God and die. End it all. But through these difficult, dark circumstances, God was working, and Job came to know his God in a more and more intimate way. The second lesson from the first chapter is a bit more consoling. God very clearly told the Jewish people not to associate with the Moabites, let alone to go and live there. And as we'll see as as the Ruth narrative unfolds, it wasn't a racial thing. It was more of a doctrinal thing. Whether it was Elimelech who pressured Naomi to move to Moab, or Naomi pressured Elimelech, or it was a mutual decision, the first few verses seem to indicate that Elimelech led the way, but in reality, we don't know. What we do know is that it was not God's will for them to go and to move and to live in Moab. So the second lesson from this chapter is this. Even when we're disobedient, it does not thwart the sovereignty and the ultimate purpose of God. Even when we're disobedient, you'll be glad to hear that. When we sin, there are certainly consequences. Sometimes those consequences appear readily. Sometimes they don't surface for a season. Yet within the sovereignty of God, he uses those consequences as a means, an underwater current to to move us towards himself, to draw us closer to him. What we'll see in our study of this book is the unfolding of God's redemptive grace, even in the midst of our sin. And now is a good time to bring up a word that drives the storyline of Ruth. It's a Hebrew word that has no English equivalent, and that word is hesed, hesed. It's only used three times in the book of Ruth, uh, and there's three main characters, but I don't know if that's connected. But as I said, it drives the storyline. And so his said is translated up in verse 8 as kindness. And other translations use the word often loving kindness. But it means so much more than that. Here's a concise description of the word his said. His said is the consistent, ever faithful, relentless, constantly pursuing, lavish, extravagant, unrestrained, energetic love of God. And there's so much more. That's just scratching the surface. And then several commentators refer to it as covenant love. But again, it's so much more than that. God consistently practices his said with a people who are continually disloyal. That's really what the whole book of Judges is about. And on one hand, you could say that's what the whole Old Testament is about. 
that God blesses a people and then they veer off. They do their own thing, worship other gods. And then he sends a judge or a leader to bring them back. Then they follow God and then they veer off and then they veer off. And if each of us in this room were honest, we would say, that's kind of like what I do. I know that it's true of me and has been true of me from my Christian experience. One of the beautiful aspects of the book of Ruth is that we will see that the three main characters are practicing his said to one another and to the other people that they encounter. For the third lesson, I'd like to provide short character sketches of Naomi and Ruth, and this will help us as the plot line unfolds. As we read, Naomi endured these horrific transitions in her life, and some commentators would refer to her as the female Job. And we'll be tempted to see Naomi as a bitter and manipulative woman as the narrative unfolds. And in fact, she does identify herself as bitter. You remember up in verse 20, she returns to Bethlehem, and Naomi means pleasant, Mara means bitter. So she's using a wordplay on her own name to say that, don't call me pleasant anymore, call me bitter. I find Naomi compelling. I actually really like her. She's real, and she's honest. And I like being in a church where it's okay to not be okay. That we don't have to all have it all together when we come in here on Sundays or go to community group. That we all go through seasons of struggle and doubt, and that's got to be okay. And I find her theology is pretty good too, especially when we consider what she's gone through. I don't see her blaming God here. I think she's, she's recognizing that God is dealing with her. And I think there's a difference. We can blame God and shake our fist, or we can ask that question, God, what are you doing? What's up? What are you, what are you looking for from me in this season? And the last thing I'll say about Naomi is in verses 8 to 15. Naomi thanks Orpah and Ruth for their said love towards her. And then Naomi demonstrates this said love to them. I would say that, of course, Naomi wanted Orpah and Ruth to go with her back to Bethlehem. She was alone. She was destitute. The three of them, we read, obviously had a good, strong relationship. But here's what Naomi knows. They, as young women, they will face a difficult time in a foreign land. The Moabites were hated in Israel, and she's willing to spare them. Even though she wants, I believe she wants them to go with her. She says, don't go. It's going to be hard. It's going to be really hard. So Naomi is willing to go it alone. And that act of selflessness, selfness has said, you could say, it, it catches Ruth's attention in the chapter. And as we turn our attention to Ruth, most, I would say, credible theologians agree that, that Ruth underwent a conversion to the covenant God of Israel in verses 16 and 17. 
Ruth may have heard about the covenant God of Israel from her husband. She may have heard about it from Naomi. But all of a sudden, the dots get connected. And she understood what Naomi was doing in that moment, seeking to save them from what could have been a very degrading and difficult life in Bethlehem. And Ruth undergoes this conversion. The dots apparently don't get connected for Orpah, and she does the sensible thing. She returns to her family and the Moabite gods. I don't see it as overt sin. I I see it as the sensible thing to do. Yeah, that's right. We should do that. And we're faced with those decisions too, aren't we? The, the, The Christian life is not necessarily the sensible thing to do. Why would we give up Sunday mornings to come here? Why would we be in a community group? Why would we walk with other people? It's sometimes not the sensible thing to do. But not Ruth. She has this declaration of commitment to the covenant God of Israel and to Ruth. Verses 16 and 17, it's one of the most powerful statements in the whole Old Testament. I've officiated a lot of weddings in my ministry career. None of the vows have ever been as powerful as Ruth's commitment to Naomi. We've all been to weddings, and most weddings use some variation of until death do us part. Not Ruth. She goes several steps further, declaring, where you die, I will die. She's saying, even after you die, I'm staying. I'm there. Even after you die. That's a big deal. Now let's talk about immigration for a moment. I hear it's a hot topic. What's the primary reason the vast majority of people are seeking to immigrate? Whether it's from Africa to or the Middle East up into Europe, or whether it's Latin America coming this way. The vast majority of people are hoping for a better life, right? Not Ruth, though. She knows that her life is going to be much harder as she returns to Bethlehem with Naomi. She knows this. She's going to become the caregiver to Naomi. As we'll see, she becomes the breadwinner for Naomi. And there will be repeated racial degradation, regular threats of violence, and the distinct possibility of violence, and even worse. And yet Ruth goes, when God awakens our hearts to his said love, then we're changed from the inside out. And then we begin to love other people with God's, his said, love. I have a friend who's a pastor, and the mission statement of their church is love everybody always. Now, I I would say that's incomplete for a mission statement, but I sure like where they're headed with that. Love everybody always. The fourth lesson is short and sweet. We need to be in community in the same way that Naomi and Ruth needed one another. Naomi and Ruth were both beset with these really significant, dark transitions. Naomi was feeling 
empty and bitter, but I don't know if you caught it. Ruth seems hopeful. She seems a bit excited about going to this new land and worshiping the covenant God of Israel. So that's sometimes the way that new believers are. I love being around people who are new to the faith. Sometimes we need a Ruth in our lives. If we're going through a particularly difficult time, trying time, a time of doubt, we need a Ruth. And then sometimes God will want to use you or me to be a Ruth in somebody's life when they're going through a dark and difficult time. And so I would say that I would strongly encourage all of us to get into a community group this fall. We need to do life with other people because we all go through tough times and difficult times. As we draw to a close today, I want to think back to Luke 24 where we began Jesus telling the two disciples that the, old, the whole Old Testament was about him. So how does this passage point us to Jesus? Ruth, the immigrant, reciprocates the covenant loving kindness that has said to Naomi. And here's what I would say. Jesus, however, is the better Ruth. He's the ultimate immigrant who left the comfort, the perfection, the joy, the majesty of heaven to come down into our brokenness with covenant loving kindness. He also promises to never leave or forsake his called out ones. We see that in Hebrews 13, verse 15. So as we close, I have some questions for you. Are you a called out one? Are you a called out one? Have the dots been connected for you? I encounter people who've been in church all their lives and the dots have never been connected. To see the beauty and the majesty of the gospel and how it's not about what we do to please or appease God, it's about what Jesus has already done for us. That's the gospel. Are you beginning to see the covenant love of God that's been pursuing you even in the dark and disturbing seasons of your life? That God has always been drawing you with his loving kindness. We need to see below our circumstances sometimes to find God in the midst. Here's a caveat, and I'll close with this. If you're here today and you happen to be considering the claims of Jesus Christ, the Christian life is not the easy way to go. It's not the sensible thing, but it's not even the easiest way to go. It's actually the more difficult way to traverse our life. In the classic book, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, by the way, if you haven't read that book, you need to read it. I'll even buy it for you if you're willing to sit down and talk to me about it. But Lewis provides us with an illustration of the Christian life that I think fits this so perfectly. He writes this, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild the house, and at first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. But presently, he starts knocking the house about, away, uh, knocking the house about in a way that hurts. 
It does not seem to make any sense to us at all. What on earth is he up to? The explanation, Lewis says, is, is that he is building quite a different house from the one that you thought of. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace, and he intends to come and live in it himself. Anyway, he is building a palace, and he intends to come and live in it himself. If the dots have not been connected and you sense something is happening, don't leave today before talk to somebody. Talk to the person that, that brought you. Talk to one of us, one of the guys you saw up here, or Barbara. And there's never a better day to invite Jesus in than a day like today.